Redeeming love has been my theme and will be till I die. Uh, And that's our hope this morning is that we never forget the grace and love of Jesus. And as we'll see in our passage this morning, uh, it's the pattern by which we are called to live, the the pattern we are called uh, to follow. So this morning, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're actually going to finish Matthew 5, this first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount uh, this morning. Uh, And this morning, I want us to talk about climate change. Climate change, okay? We're going to talk about the Christian view of climate change. Because you know, if you watch the news at all, you know that climate change is a subject uh, about which much has been written, much has been said, much has been argued uh, some argue that humans have caused it. Others argue that, yes, the climate is changing, but it's part of a natural process. It's not caused by human beings. Um, and all the while, we hear reports of glaciers melting, sea levels rising, and, and many, many other things that are happening. Time out. Lest we get sidetracked this morning, that's actually not what our text is talking about, okay? This morning, we're going to talk about a different kind of climate change, not global meteorological climate change but about relationship climate change, a climate change in your hearts and in your souls. And I want to explain what I mean by that. You know, our text today talks about a couple of things. One is how to respond to insults. Another is how you treat people who you would call your enemies. And in both cases, our natural response, as we're going to see, is to throw right back and basically to acclimate yourself to whatever is being given to you and give it right back to the people around you. If your coworker gives you an insult, then you fire an insult right back. But Jesus tells us today that we are to have a different temperature, a different spiritual climate than the rest of the world in our relationships. We are to demonstrate a climate of love and mercy. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And really, that's what we've been looking at for the past several weeks, is Jesus telling us that we are to have a different kind of purity, a different kind of faithfulness, a different kind of honesty. A different kind of reconciliation. But here's the most important truth in all of this. In this kind of climate change that we're talking about, we know who causes it, okay? And it's not humans. Humans can't cause this kind of climate change. Only God can cause spiritual climate change. We must depend on him working through his Holy Spirit, depending on the finished work of Christ, in order for him to transform the climate of our hearts. And so that's my hope this morning, that as we look at this text, we'll see what God wants to do to give us a new climate uh, and and how he calls us not only to a new way of living, uh, but as we'll see first of all here this morning, is that he calls us to a new way of loving. Really, that's one of the big points of the Sermon on the Mount, and we've said that week after week, is that Jesus says that if you're my follower, if you've trusted me, and you're following Jesus as your Savior, uh, then you are called to a new way of living. And this morning, we're going to see that it actually changed. We're going to change that word just a little bit to a new way of loving, because that really sums it all up and ties it all together as far as what we are called to do. So let's look at that. As we have had in each of the last several weeks, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and he names an instruction, and then he says, but I say to you, and he explains the heart behind that instruction. And so uh, this morning, we're going to look at two instructions. These are the last two in this section of Matthew 5, Um, and this first instruction is that Jesus says, you have heard about equal retaliation, okay? So that first key word kind of is retaliation, that we all kind of feel like we need to retaliate. 
Listen to these verses or follow along in your Bible as we read Matthew 5, 38 through 42. It says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. So that's the first instruction we see in these verses is this idea that we are called or we are allowed to have equal retaliation. But Jesus says, let me show you a better way. Now, we all kind of get this, right? I'm going to show you this picture of just the, the justice scales. Whenever, especially in your personal life, something happens to you that's unfair, you just kind of automatically feel like, that's not right. That's not fair. I need it to be right for me, too. And we get this, I think, from childhood. It begins early on, don't we? Uh, uh, this is, if you're a parent, you know how this works. Um, you, you hear a big commotion and you go check on this fight or whatever's happening, an argument, and you say, okay, what's going on? And pretty soon it's, he started it. No, she started it. And well, I had to give it back to him because he hit me, so I had to hit him. It starts early. This idea of equal retaliation. If somebody wrongs me, I get to wrong them back. It's just kind of within us. But you know, it doesn't just get tied to kids, does it? You get into the grown-up world, uh, and you hear this a lot. In marriage counseling, I hear this a lot. Uh, well, this fight started because he said that. Well, yeah, but then she did this, and it really sounds a lot like what we said when we were kids. This idea of because that person did something wrong to me, I can do something wrong back to them. In fact, uh, as we're going to see here in Exodus 21, this is rooted in the law of Moses. Exodus 21, it says this. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So it's right there in the Old Testament. In other words, if somebody does wrong, you have the right to demand that that wrong be made right. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But Jesus says, let me show you a different way. What we need to understand about these instructions in the Old Testament is this, is especially in this situation here in Exodus 21, it's that when somebody, a wrongdoer does something wrong, this, this, this command is actually given to protect the wrongdoer, believe it or not. It's not given in this particular instance to say, yes, now you're allowed to get revenge. In other words, it's, it's given by God to prevent the offended party from exacting more revenge than what's deserved. That makes sense? So, uh, for example, uh, well, let's just move on to what Jesus says here. So you notice when Jesus says, you've heard that this was said. Well, let me tell you the heart behind it. And I think what we see, the heart behind what God wants us to do when we are faced with insults or things like this, is he calls us to respond with a generous heart, a generous heart. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is in your personal interactions, okay? So when somebody personally insults you or personally does one of these things to you, this is what Jesus is talking about. He's not necessarily talking to groups or to uh, nations or things like that. Although the heart is true, no matter what position you hold. A generous heart. 
So he mentions a couple things here. He says, if somebody slaps you on the face, if somebody takes your tunic, if somebody tells you to go one mile, and if somebody tells you or that they want to borrow from you. So there's kind of four things he lists off there. And so what's going on with those things? And uh, I want to make a few comments about those things. Again, we don't live in that culture, so it's impossible for us to know exactly what was happening with each one of those things. But I think we'll see clearly what the heart behind Jesus' response is. So this idea of, of uh, a slap on the face, again, this is an individual to an individual. This is not the same, when we read this in the New Testament setting, this is not the same as a physical attack where somebody's just coming and trying to beat someone up. Okay, this, this slap on the face is an insult. It's basically a very high level of insult, right? That's still true in our society today. If you slap someone on the face, that's kind of, you're saying we've gone beyond words here. I'm actually physically going to insult you. Uh, we talk to our kids about this all the time, right? It's not appropriate to respond with an insult that's physical. But that's what it was. It was an insult. And so Jesus says the world, the response to an insult would be, you slapped me, I'm going to slap you right back. But he says there's a different kind of response, and that would be a generous response. And that would be not to return that insult with the insult, which is what we naturally would want to do, right? If somebody slaps you, you want to slap them back. Somebody insults you, you want to insult them back. But don't insult them back. In fact, he says, turn the other cheek. I think what's important for us to remember here, a couple things. Like I said, this is not physical attack he's talking about. I don't believe that uh, that Jesus is saying you're required to subject yourself to, uh, to physical danger or abuse. Uh, if you have an abuser who's hitting you, it's not that you're just called to let that person keep abusing you. But this is, again, that the setting we're talking about here is this, this idea of an insult, the slap of an insult. Our natural response is to insult back or to fight back. And Jesus says, don't fight back. Do the opposite. The next one, this idea of giving your tunic or your cloak or your shirt. Uh, basically, it says, if, if someone takes your tunic, give to them your cloak also. It's kind of the same thing as saying, if somebody takes your shirt, give them your coat also. Now, what's going on here? Sometimes, uh, like on a, say, a short-term loan, uh, people would give their, actually give their shirt as collateral, okay? They would actually hand it off. It's a pretty good reminder that you owe somebody, right? Um, if you are missing your shirt or missing your coat. And Jesus says, uh, to make a point that if somebody demands that you give them collateral for something, don't just give them what's required. Give them even more than what is required. Give more than what's expected. Another thing, uh, when it says, if someone asks you to go with them one mile, go with him too. So this is an interesting one. Remember, uh, during Jesus' time, the land of Israel was occupied by Romans. And so there were Roman soldiers everywhere. And the law in, in Roman society actually permitted a Roman soldier to grab someone on the side of the road and say, hey, you carry my gear. You have to carry it. You're legally required to carry it for a mile. And they could literally do that. And so, you know, it's easy to see why these Jewish people did not like their uh, Roman occupiers. Because uh, at any moment, they could be called into service. I don't feel like carrying all my baggage today. Why don't you carry it for me? I don't know about you, but I wouldn't like that very much. Sometimes this sort of thing happens out on the farm, right, at my house. I'm saying, hey, kids, I don't want to carry this over there. Why don't you carry it? It's not child labor, though, I promise. Uh, but this idea of... of 
God's, or Jesus says, sometimes you're asked to do something that's not fair. It's not right. These people force you to do something that is wronging you. But rather than resent them or be filled with bitterness or hatred, he says, do even more than what they asked you to do. With generosity, give them more than what they asked for. Even if what they asked for is technically not just, he says, do more than that. And then the other thing, when, when someone asks you to borrow, when someone asks to borrow from you, uh, there's, there's a risk associated with that, right? And sometimes we're reluctant to take that risk. Uh, here in this situation, Jesus says, don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Verse 47, or uh, 42, it actually says, do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Literally, you could translate that. Do not turn away from the one who would borrow from you. And so if we're going to boil all these things kind of down and say, what is Jesus saying here? What's he trying to tell us? You've heard it was said, take, you can take revenge, but I'm telling you, don't take revenge. Give the opposite of revenge. Give generously to people who are taking from you. Turn towards, not against or away. Does that make sense? So in other words, when Jesus says, if somebody's wronging you, rather than give right back to them what they've been giving to you, Give them the opposite. Overflow with a generous spirit. In fact, what I think we would say the way forward on this is we could sum this up as radical mercy. Radical mercy. Jesus says, give to people not what they deserve, but what they don't deserve. If we're going to talk about the definition of mercy, mercy is this idea of compassion or forgiveness that's shown towards someone who deserves the opposite. Okay. Uh, in other words, they deserve something, but you don't give them what they deserve. Mercy and grace are very closely related. So mercy is withholding what people deserve. You could give them punishment. You could slap them back because that's what they deserve. But you're withholding that. That's what we call mercy. Grace is giving them the opposite of what they deserve. Giving to them riches of forgiveness. Like what Jesus does for us. So God's mercy is our picture here. God's mercy is pity and compassion on those who deserve judgment. And he tells us, when you run into people who wrong you personally, insult you personally, don't give them what they deserve. Give them the opposite. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, so you might be sitting there listening, and I've read this passage before, and I still wrestle with this even after studying it this week. And you might be saying, what does this look like? So look like this? <laughs> okay, I'm just a doormat. Everybody can walk all over me, and I just have, if they're taking advantage of me, I just have to let them do it. No matter what. I think, again, you have to read Scripture in light of all of Scripture, right? And so there's a place for standing up for what's right. Um, and not just being a doormat and let people run over you. Standing up for right, but what's right. But I think what Jesus is telling us here in this passage is that if there's something you need to stand up for, he's telling us how you stand up for it, okay? This is how you do it. Radical mercy looks like blank. I think this is something to walk away from this message and from this passage with is saying, what does it look like for me to show radical mercy, generous mercy, like what Jesus is describing here? What does that look like? You know, I think... The clearest thing we can see here, and this kind of goes back to what we talked about a few weeks ago, the clearest thing that radical mercy looks like that's specifically addressed in this text is not repaying insult for insult. 
I don't know about you all, but that comes very naturally to me. It might be with Sarah, my wife, right? We're going back and forth and insults start going back and forth. You get teenage kids, right? That can start happening as well. Uh, it can happen in any setting you want it to. But repaying insults for insults is kind of our natural response. It just comes naturally, at least to people like me. But God says, instead of insults, give kind words. We talk about uh, mercy and this radical mercy. You know, we've talked every week a little bit about what's, what are the danger zones? Where is it that you struggle with showing this? And I would say, you know, a couple of different ones are present here, right? Family would be one of them. Family would be one of them. So if you have siblings, say you're a kid, maybe you're not even a kid, maybe you're an adult, and you still struggle with this way of interacting with, with siblings. They insult you or they talk to your, uh, talk bad behind your back. So that's a danger zone. Here's another big one that you have to watch out for um, when it comes to this idea of, of, uh, not returning insult for insult, and that would be in-laws, right? Uh, I've been blessed with amazing in-laws, um, and uh, I know many of you have been as well. But just know that, again, when we watch how marriages struggle, this is a danger zone. People interpret something as an insult when maybe it wasn't even intended to be an insult. And so watch out for that. Do not return insult for insult. And then, of course, uh, in your family, if you're married, uh, your spouse. This is one that, again, this is the person that hopefully you love more than any other person on this earth. And yet, it's the easiest to insult that person or to return insults or pay them back for whatever they did to you. That's the opposite of the spiritual climate that Jesus is trying to set in our lives. Okay? He says, I want you to have a climate of radical mercy in your, in your home, in your family. And another danger zone probably would be uh, in a workplace, right? Depending on where you work or how you work, uh, a lot of backbiting goes on behind the scenes, doesn't it? Sometimes you get insulted, receive insults, or you trade insults. You share insults with other people because someone else shared something about you. School would be another place where this happens. Jesus says, if you've been wronged, Do not return wrong in turn. Do just the opposite. Show generous mercy, even if you feel like someone deserves to be wronged right back. That's the culture of the gospel. Why is radical mercy so important? Why is it important for us to grasp this concept and to demonstrate it? Let's go back to Matthew 5.16. Matthew 5.16. In the same way... Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So here again, God says, if you can demonstrate generous mercy, radical mercy, giving people, withholding back punishment from people when maybe they deserve it, you'll stand out like a bright light and people will say, what's different about that person? How are they able to overflow with love even for people who've wronged them? The answer is, We are able to forgive because we've been forgiven. See, we look different when we have merciful, generous hearts. We look different than the world, than the darkness that is around us. If you follow Jesus, be like him. Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
So again, if you've received mercy, God calls you to demonstrate that mercy, even in this area of of insults and and, and being wronged. So that's the first uh, part of this climate change, is that idea of revenge and anger. Here's instruction number two. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And this comes from verses 43 through 47. So follow along on the screens or again, look in your Bible as we read these verses. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. See, Jesus singles out two groups of people there, the tax collectors and Gentiles. Those are the people who are sinful, okay? Those that, if in Jesus' day, you would look at those two groups of people and say, okay, they're clearly not doing what God wants them to do because they're stealing from people and they're not even following God. And yet Jesus says they know how to love people who love them. So that's not really any different than the world. So you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Here's one comment on those verses. We go back to that. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Have you ever found a scripture verse that actually tells you to do that? Answer is no. There's actually no verse in scripture that says, I want, God says, I want you to hate your enemy. So what's Jesus talking about here? How would he be getting this? Because actually, if you go back to Old Testament law, you don't have to turn here. The law actually says just the opposite. Uh, uh, this is from Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. It says this, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. In other words, you see the, the livestock of your enemy running down the road. Maybe, maybe let's say you see a, in our today's terms, it would be you would see your neighbor's car parked on the side of the road or rolling down the road. Grab that car and take it home. Verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So the law itself even says you should love your neighbor. Here's another one. Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that's the Old Testament law. So where would people have heard this? Like Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We don't know exactly where that comes from, but I suspect that what Jesus is talking about is that this is just human practice. Even if it's not spoken, you watch people. This is what people do. You've heard people saying this your whole life. Be nice to the people who are nice to you, but don't worry about those people who are mean to you. Just let them off on their own. Leave them alone. This is what people do, even if it's not what they say. That brings us to this instruction number two, where it says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But Jesus says, if you're my follower, the heart of the matter is that you have a loving heart for everyone, not just for the people who are kind to you. Not just for the people who love you, but even for the people 
you would call your enemies. It's interesting in these verses, he gives us a couple of reasons why we should have this loving heart. If we look at uh, verse 45, it says this, uh, verses 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. This is a mark of what we would call maturity. It's a mark of maturity. You are growing up into the type of child that God has raised. Look at uh, back at verse 9, Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So why is it important for us to have a loving heart even towards enemies? Because this is, this is a mark of maturity. It's, it's also a sign that our love is God-like. We are becoming more and more like Jesus if we're able to do this. It says, you will be called the sons of God. Uh, love your neighbors. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be called, that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Again, if we're living in this world that Jesus has made new, this new kingdom, we are called to absorb the character and the behavior and the qualities of our king. So our love creates a climate of love, basically. Look at these verses, uh, verse uh, 45, it says, For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, his love, his provision for humans doesn't just go to the people who are good, who've earned it. He shows love and provision uh, of rain and sun to everyone. So in that way, we're actually imitating God as well. He creates a climate of love through us. If you think about it, if you're loving an enemy, you create this climate of love, a climate of blessing where you can win your enemies over. Make friends. It's like sunshine and rain uh, sharing God's love in this way. And the last thing, but kind of the last reason why I think God tells us to have a loving heart, the reasons to love your enemies is uh, it's a testimony to others. I mean, look at those verses. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, if you're able to love people who you would classify as enemies, people who have wronged you, uh, who are treating you poorly, that looks different than the rest of the world. You have a different spiritual temperature, a different climate in your life than the world around you. It's a testimony to others. It's an investment of love. And so the way forward on this, we believe, is radical love. Radical love. That sums up a whole lot of things, doesn't it? Matthew 7, verse 12. Matthew 7, verse 12 says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. We call that the golden rule. You heard that actually back in Leviticus. Do to your neighbor what you would want them to do to you. What does radical love look like? A couple of really practical things in this passage. Verse 44. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The very first thing we can do is an act of love with somebody that we're at odds with. Somebody who you would call an enemy is pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Maybe one step even before that is recognize who would you call your enemies. And you might say, well, I don't have any enemies. There's nobody I hate. Um, 
But I think what Jesus is saying is that as a Christian, we are actually called to think about the people who we dislike. Maybe we could use as strong a word as hate. And those people also are to receive love from us. So who would those people be? Figure out who those people are. So pray for your enemies. Uh, Verse uh, 47 says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? So this idea of greeting means means more than just saying hello and and a wave. Uh, That idea is more of uh, pursuing a relationship with people like that. Again, what's the purpose of this? Why are we called to have this radical love? So that we can draw more people to Jesus. To be a light. What else does radical love look like? Here's a hard one. But I think it goes right along with what Jesus is saying here. Radical love looks like forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, I don't know how many of you struggle with forgiveness, but this is one that doesn't come natural to me. Okay, I know a lot of people, um, a lot of people who are close to me who are really easy and quick to forgive. That doesn't come naturally to me. I kind of want to sit on it or I want to make them pay just a little bit. Let them suffer a little bit of whatever it is that I've suffered. Brothers and sisters, that's not forgiveness. How many times in the New Testament does Jesus say, forgive one another as I have forgiven you? It's not an option. It's a command. Radical love looks like forgiveness in your friendships and your marriages. Radical love is also sacrificial, right? The love that Jesus showed to us was totally sacrificial. He sacrificed everything. The very drops of his blood, which we remembered here this morning. It's sacrificial. Think of the story of the Good Samaritan. The one who actually showed love to that man who was injured on the side of the road, the one who actually showed love to him, did so at great sacrifice. So radical love is sacrificial. What do you need to sacrifice in order to love your enemy? We also want to remember that we have brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution for their faith. Currently, we're not facing that right here in Covington, Louisiana. Not much. Uh, There may be a day where that comes. But remember to pray for those who are being persecuted. Because I would say in almost no situation does Christ's love shine brighter than when a persecuted believer is able to love the enemy who's spit in their face or who's threatening to torture them or throw them in jail. So we want to remember to pray for those, that they show radical love and that we show that kind of love as well. So this is the climate change we're talking about. Radical love, radical mercy, generous mercy, the character of God. This would be a fine place to end the sermon, except there's one more little verse that we need to look at. And that would be Matthew 5.48. Matthew 5.48, which reveals the standard, perfect righteousness. Let's look at this verse. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we get to the end of this chapter on the Sermon on the Mount, and and you may have been thinking all these weeks saying, man, these are all great ideals, Marcus. You're telling me I have to love my enemies. You're telling me I have to hold it back and not uh, not return insults for insults. All these things you're listing off, you're making it sound like I have to be perfect. And guess what? The summary verses, you therefore must be perfect, just like your Heavenly Father is perfect. We can't water down that word perfect. It means literally complete, perfect. That's a hard verse to end this on, 
In fact, again, like I said, these last few weeks, the things we've talked about, radical reconciliation, radical purity, radical faithfulness, radical honesty, and then today, radical mercy and radical love. And you might look at that list or all these verses and all the attitudes Jesus says, it's not enough just to do the right thing. You also must believe the right thing and think the right thing. And you might say, I can't, I just can't do this. I would tell you that's the appropriate response, actually. You can't do this. But Jesus can. And he can do it in you. Through him, you also can. Here's what I want to show you. A couple verses about the gospel. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word justified is a legal term. It basically means declared righteous. It's the same word as righteousness. So God says that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have been legally declared righteous. Not because you are. In fact, you're far from it if you look at Scripture. But legally, you are declared righteous. God loved you enough to rescue you from the penalty of sin, to say you're not guilty anymore. But he also loved you too much to leave you the way you are. And he wants you to be transformed That brings us to another powerful verse. Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 14, it says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's what he did when he died on the cross. It was a sacrifice in our place. But look at what verse 14 says. It says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's made you perfect. You're not perfect on your own, but in God's sight, because of Jesus, you are perfect. Now, as Jesus makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount, that doesn't mean, okay, just go live however you want. He says, I've set you free from the penalty of sin, but I've also set you free from the sin itself, the sin that would destroy you. And that's why he lays out these standards. It's only possible through the sacrifice of Jesus. Don't miss that. You can never be perfect on your own. It's only through trusting Jesus Christ, depending on him. So the standard is perfect righteousness. I'm going to show you a picture again here of how often we try to attain perfect righteousness through our own strength. I showed you this last week. It's like we're tapping into ourselves as the source of power. How much good does a power strip do if it's plugged into itself? None. It does no good whatsoever. Too often we try to do that. But I want to share as in closing just an example of what we talked about today. An example of radical love and also an example of what it looks like to depend on Christ alone for this. You can't do this on your own. Does anybody recognize that picture? That's Corey Ten Boom. And uh, some of you may know who she is. Others may not. But her story is one that's worth repeating. Because here's the deal. She, this is her at age 80-something. She's a survivor of a Nazi concentration camp. Uh, she was thrown into a, a concentration camp because she and her family were hiding Jews in their home. And uh, actually in this concentration camp, her sister, who she was very close to, her sister's name was Betsy, died uh, of starvation, malnourishment, and sickness. So she lost her own sister in this. And yet she was able to come out of this and share a message of forgiveness. 
But I want to read to you in her own words what she said about how hard it was to do this. Because one time it says she gave a talk. She was actually in Germany. This was in 1947, uh, two years after the war ended. And she was giving a talk, trying to lead people to Jesus, telling them, you can be forgiven and you can forgive others. She used Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, as, uh, as deep as the sea is, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So she's proclaiming forgiveness. And then listen to what she says. She says, and that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others who were leaving the auditorium. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, but the next I saw a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. In other words, she recognized this guy who's walking towards her. He's an SS guard uh, who was actually at the camp where her sister died. It all came back to me with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, her ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy and I had been arrested, of course, for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. And this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, the concentration camp where we were sent. And now he was standing in front of me, holding his hand out, and he said, A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook, rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember me? One prisoner among those thousands of women. But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I'd been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. Clearly, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Will you please forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and and I could not forgive him. Betsy had died in that place. Could he now erase her terrible, slow death simply by asking for forgiveness? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there with his hand held out. But to me, it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the heart can function regardless of the temperature. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm. It sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, my brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in the hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. 
And she pauses and says, that's not true. I wish I could say it. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just flowed naturally from then on. But they didn't. And if there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior on my own, but only draw them afresh from God each day. So, brothers and sisters, I would invite you, as she learned, depend on him. Depend on him, not yourself. Remember that you are plugged into him. He is the source of your life. His radical love changes everything about your life. There is now a climate of radical love and obedience that's possible through him. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your son and for your mercy and your love. Pray that we would demonstrate that as we go forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Now go and make disciples.